Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast. This podcast presents the very best recorded panels and seminars with regards to role-playing game design and publishing. This podcast has been made possible thanks to the generous contributions of the panel speakers and of Double Exposure with their amazing game design convention, Metatopia. Episode 124, The CMU Playtest Study, recorded at Metatopia 2016, presented by Judith Odenchoy and Jessica Hammer. This is Judith Odin Choi. Uh, we're here from Carnegie Mellon University, and um, where I run a game research lab. So we study games, we study game designers, we study the game design process. And the game design process is one of the things that brings us to Metatopia, because this is a place where designers come to engage with their games, to engage with players, while their games are still in the process of being made and understood. And that process is one of the things we're interested in because it turns out game designers know a lot about it, but that knowledge is often sort of locked inside game design communities. And it's hard to disseminate, it's hard to share, it's hard to teach novice game designers how to do these practices that when we're designing games, We may sort of understand because we were taught by somebody else through an apprenticeship model. We absorbed them through conversations. We discovered them through experimentation. So we're trying to, through research, um, help game designers make better games. When we say game designers, we mean actually game designers from many contexts. And today we're going to talk about work that we did with students in game design programs at CMU. And one of the things that we're hoping to do here at Metatopia is to understand where our work can generalize to working game designers like you, people who are publishing and producing games on a regular basis, which parts of our work resonate and can be extended, and which parts of our work are maybe specific to the people that we've already worked with. So um, I'm actually going to be turning this over to Judy, who is in just a minute. She has been sort of working in a very deep way, hands-on, with game designers, understanding their process, understanding what's hard, understanding what's easy. Um, And uh, maybe, uh, I don't know, can we give you a round of applause now? Or we'll give you a round of applause. Okay, yay, Judy! All right, we'll give you a round of applause. Yeah, all right. So I'm going to turn that over to her, and I'm going to come back up at the end for Q&A. Hi. So... um, as Jess introduced, this is playtesting play testing with a purpose. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about myself and what brings me here, um, talk through the studies we've been doing over the last three years, um, some of the playtesting methods we've been teaching, some things that are some, some of the pitfalls in playtesting that we found that the students in our master's um, program in game design struggle with, and some of the interventions that we kind of worked on to, to address those. Um, 
we have this time you know, together. I can emphasize more one section than another. Please feel free to like raise your hand and ask questions or to refocus. I can kind of be a little flexible about where we spend, our, spend most of our time today. Um, would you guys mind introducing yourselves? Would you mind? No? Would you be okay? Just like your name and uh, one thing about... Wait, what's what, what you're doing here, what you like to do, what you, yeah? Uh, sure, uh, my name is Peter Zicolo, and I'm here to, uh, sorry, uh, my name is Peter Zicolo, and I'm here to, like, us to party with that Yeah, hi, hi. Um, I'm Rachel E.S. Walton, I'm here playtesting with Moira Turkington, um, a game called Warbirds, a Warbirds game called Nightingales. Uh, my name is Mike. I'm with uh, Coalition Games Studio. We do freelance tabletop game uh, development consulting. So you send prototypes, you play test them, and uh, you give them a feedback. You got a card? Yes. Okay. What it's all about. All right, yeah. I'm Kyla. I'm with Alice Games. Uh, I'm here playtesting other people's games. Uh, I'm Alice that we're going to publish. And I'm working on the Hi, I'm Michelle Lyons with Farland. I've done a lot of game design, and uh, I'm here testing two card games, which I've never done card games before, but what the heck, right? So that's what we're doing. Yes, let's see. Hi, I'm James, longtime game player, first time game designer. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I'm Ryan, and uh, I work on making heavy Heroes Dog games. I'm Jay, I write mostly LARPs. I'm currently working on designing for virtual immersion and um, designing for neurodiversity accessibility. My name's Vinny, I'm with uh, Global Frequency Studios. We're working on an RPG that's also to be a social experiment. RPG <laughs> social experiment, yeah. I'm Sadie, I'm here to test two games that I've designed, uh, Tricle and Space Paradise. Um, it's, it's very cool for me to be here. Uh, CMU is an awesome place, um, but it is not certainly this rich and diverse uh, game games like what we get all in one weekend this, this weekend. It's pretty cool for me. So a little bit about me. My background is in theater. Um, I'm now working on my PhD with Jessica Hammer and human-computer interaction. And um, stuff that I work on is the game design, game design process, like this playtesting talk today, and um, some work in social justice communities. Um, I was a high school theater teacher. This is a very proud uh, moment for me in the Wizard of Oz when we arrive in Munchkinland. Um, that flash animation being projected on the background took myself and a design class a very long time to, to, uh, to pull together. Um, it was really cool when uh, Glenda's wit bubble floated down, when the, when the tornado hit. Um, watch out. Um, I moved from there to working still in theater and still sometimes with youth and other communities, but really thinking more about how I bring communities of non-artists and artists together to create, to co-create a show. Um, in doing this kind of work, 
um, what we thought a lot about was community aesthetics, that um, it was important for us that the aesthetics of the community was reflected in the work that was created and that everything was adapted and changed, everybody was contributing to that. Um, but also, along with creating a play, another part of what we're creating is a community. That that is a product that is being created, that is a thing we are created that has its own set, the aesthetics of community. And some of what's involved there is how the participants are interacting with each other, these artists and these community members. And one important piece of that is that everybody gets a paycheck, right? Everyone is getting paid, everybody is being respected different ways that we're kind of um, leveling out this, these, these relationships and um, encouraging participation. Um, I also have worked with a publishing company, publishing literary um, works, and doing some experiments looking at um, the way that, some experiments with um, live performances, um, thinking a lot about the performance of making something and this is an installation where we had somebody, we, where people were invited to sit down and write in a public place and people were watching. There are other sort of installations that had people speaking into a mic and what they were saying is being, being uh, uh, projected up. So I'm just saying this to say, like, we were playing with this idea of the performance of making something, the performance of participation, the performance of making something. And when we bring that out into the community and give everybody a chance to participate in, in making something, in this case they're making um, stories about what they want their neighborhood to be and putting it together and making a map, um, some interesting things were happened. So you see how I'm evolving from some place in my own life where I started with theater, as we sort of know, musical theater, to this increased idea of participation and community building as a, as a central idea. So what that brings me to is my research. In my research, I work in um, game design and doing some body storming techniques. I'll be doing some workshops, trying out some, some techniques this weekend. Um, that brings some of those theater ideas and that idea of us participating and co-creating together um, and I've been working on playtesting, which for me is a very much about how to bring players, those participants, into our process. Right? What are those moments where, we're, where we as designers are communicating with our players? How are we sort of aligning with what our players are expecting or the sort of experiences that they might be um, moving forward with? I'm going to go past that. So um, we're going to talk a little bit about... about when we say play testing, um, we're really meaning just designing any kind of play experience that gives you data that you can use to advance your design. Um, we're thinking about it very generally, a way for you, any way for you to get data that's going to help you with the next iteration of your, play your game design. Um, we are very much in support of play testing early and often, right? that as soon as you have a moment to, to design from the very moment that you begin, and this sort of cycle of um, uh, generating an idea, formulating it, testing it, refining it continually. When we broke that down as a team of people who were all working on playtesting design, we really settled on three different types of playtesting. Playtesting early in the design process where you might be using playtesting to discover um, what you don't know about the space, what kind of game you want to make, define this design space, things, um, the lo-fi prototyping, things that might help you explore. 
right? Um, when testing, when you have a working prototype ready and you need to refine that experience. And testing when you are ready to start sharing that game with others, right? When you're ready to evaluate how the play is, how play is working, when you're looking to gather evidence to gain support for what you're doing, like, like I, I, can, I, I know, I'm validated, people are having fun, I know that's going on. And as a way also that's important for like developing that community of like-minded people who are excited about your game. It's another role of playtesting. And that boiled down to three workshops. Explore, refine, and persuade. Playing testing to find the game, playtesting to revise and improve the game, and playtesting to evaluate that game. Um, these three workshops we taught as at CMU in the um, graduate program for game and experience design, which is called the Entertainment Technology Center, the ETC. Um, and we taught this workshop um, three semesters, over three, we taught the three workshops three times, iterating as we went, and I'll tell you a little bit more about some of the things that we discovered as, as we go on. These workshops were all very hands-on. We, we worked on the playtesting methods. We got, they got feedback on the methods as we went. Um, and they were integrated with their ongoing semester projects. So a little bit about the ETC. In this program, students are put together in groups of sort of five to eight. Students, they are, somebody might be an artist, somebody might be a programmer, somebody might be the game designer, a producer. They have different roles defined. And um, they work in that project team like 40 hours a week to make a game in that semester. They um, receive a brief from a real world client. So some of them are getting a brief from a from AAA game studios asking them to sort of like explore this new um, uh, hardware that, they have, that they're, they're putting out. Some of them get a brief that's like from a local middle school class science classroom asking to help with an intervention. So it's a really a range of things, but they have this sort of outside client that they are accountable for. Um, so, and they meet regularly with those clients and with their advisors. So it's a, the idea is that they're running like almost like a small studio for that time and it's been a great access for us, interested in the game design process and this game design education, to have to watch them through the process through the semester. Right? As an example of like, they have their own project rooms. Each team has a project room. They play test with bringing in real players that are in their approximate uh, range or going to the schools. Right? Um, so... Now, what did we teach in these three playtesting workshops? This is the overview, right? So in Explore, we talked about observing a playtest, using a probe, um, uh, something that might, uh, maybe you just want to test out how, how people respond to a certain artwork or certain characters, right? To some just piece, some asset that you want to test, right? Um, actually testing the play, uh, and, and co-design, using play if you are partnering with somebody like that middle school science, science teacher, that you might need some tools to help you work um, and, and uh, design together. Um, and refine, really thinking about how we're collecting the data, right? How do you run an observation? Um, how do you try to eliminate experimenter bias, right? Um, running a think aloud for those making, um, uh, especially those making sort of one-player digital games, that we can you can hear what the player is thinking as they play as they walk through. Um, 
formulating interview questions, writing good survey questions. Um, in Persuade, we're thinking more about this, 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 this axis of expertise and experiment. Of on the expertise side, um, getting some some people who are perhaps experts in that field to help give you uh, some feedback and how to use that kind of feedback, relying on your own expertise, being able to talk about the way that you are experienced in what you do, um, and experimenting. Like for especially in the cases of the educational games that um, that some of these are projects were a pre-post test, setting up A/B tests, testing different. If I tweak this feature, how does it change? Right and getting that kind of that kind of um, that kind of buy-in. Why is it called persuade? Yeah, so we iterated on that a couple times, and we landed on persuade because we feel that it is a lot about this that moment when you're when you are sharing the game with somebody else, and you're in this place where you're ready to persuade players that what you're doing is awesome to persuade backers that what you're doing is awesome, and that this playtesting, to persuade your community for buy-in, that this playtesting is still about refining, but that there's this huge piece that's about communicating what your game does. Um, Right, so if if any, I can... Um, imagine that a lot of you have a lot of experience with these. Is there anything anybody has a question about that wants me to go in further about some of the methods that we presented or methods we chose not to present? Mm-hmm. Can you talk about yeah. So this is really in the talk, say, if like if you're starting with a game asset or an aesthetic. Um, we saw, where we saw some teams have success with this is if they were um, um, very avatar-based games of testing out the, the, the avatars and seeing if the player population they thought would relate to the avatar liked it or not. Um, we also saw some things like playing around with... Um, um, there was a, a, a group that made, a, that made a game that was very music-heavy. Uh, and it was supposed, the music was supposed to evoke certain, they wanted to do something with like emotion, evoking emotion and music in their game. So first they needed to, like they had some ideas about what songs might connect with what emotions, but they wanted to test out and see with different, different players, is this, is this true? But I think, do other people associate this, make this association? Yeah, do you want to? So, and, and uh, you know, if you want to think about taking this like into the role playing space, for example, you can imagine that you could probe with like a like a mood board for your game. So let's say you have you know a feel you're going for with your game. You might put together something that has no rules, no mechanics, no sort of ability to play the game, but you create this aesthetic experience. You show it to people and you say, "What stories do you imagine telling in this environment? What do you think a game in this space would focus on?" So you're really using some kind of artifact to get people to react that isn't about playing the game itself, but that's trying to get at some other aspect of gameplay, like how would I feel, or 
uh, when I when engagement. I, engagement yeah. Right. Does this engage me? Who do I think this is for? Right. So one trope that I often use is I will show someone uh, some snippet out of the game and say, uh, let's say you had to recommend this to a friend. Who? Which of your friends would you say, hey, you should play this game? Now tell me about this person, right? Which is a way of getting at the idea of where they think that like connection and engagement comes from. So really thinking about designing probes, uh, you can think about designing a range of different kinds of probes uh, that are not about testing gameplay, but about testing other apps, like about testing your game without actually playing it, right? Even with a low, not even a low-fi prototype, but testing other aspects of your game that are about rules. So I've got a game with this theme, and I think it's going to have roles in it. I think these five roles are a good set. What do you think? Sure, that's right. Uh, mostly important games, so that's... That's right. Right, so you can imagine, or you could give them ten roles, circle the five that you think are coolest, right? Or um, match up, you know, take these roles, and which roles would your friends want to play, right? Which of your friends would want to play this role? Tell me about that person. Maybe that person is not actually playing. So there are ways to do that kind of probing in more games as well. Um, and some of the methods in refine, right? Observe, observing the play test. Um, we all are here play testing. We are all observing our players, our players at play. Um, we have some tools about uh, how to just like take notes and and use video and what, what whatever they need to do. Oh, did it repeat the same thing? Oh, I shouldn't have repeated that. That's not right. Hmm. Okay. Um, Oh, man. Okay. You want to do verbally? Yeah. So uh, our methods in refine were none of these. Okay. Methods in refine are about how to do, um, how, how do you do the survey? How do you, what kind of interview questions might you ask somebody? What question, what, how do you talk to, how do you do the post-game conversation? Right? Um, how, what are you looking for? In um, these these sort of tests, and if you have uh, if you're playing with a certain mechanic, are you really interested in this in this how this something affects that you make sure you are observing how people are responding to that piece, how to focus in, right? Um, and in experiment and expertise in experiment, asking for for expertise or a, understanding how to talk about your own expertise, um, and and um, conducting experiments that show what the sort of effect that your play has. Um, let me check on something right here. Let me do some sneaky stuff. Something is looking suspicious. I think it's fixed. It wasn't that bad. Um, so this, what, what we did is we ran these workshops, but then we had this great access to, this, uh, to these teams of players, so we went and then observed them running their, their playtest independently. 
right? We watched them run their play test. We gathered their surveys. We analyzed all of this material. We interviewed teams afterwards. We interviewed their advisors so we could get a full picture of what they were doing and why they were doing it and what they kind of what they what they thought of what they were doing it. And that says a lot of teams attended. Some of the teams we observed and some of the teams we interviewed. Um, and what we found is we found some common mistakes. Right? And they were not exactly the mistakes that we had anticipated because we thought when we were running this that our game design students did not have good methods. They did not have the tools. Um, but what we found is we found that the problems that they were having was on a, were on a higher level. So like they were just having problems with like understanding what goals of the game were. What were the goals of the game? They want to empower children with a health condition. Poor Team B really struggled with this idea of empowerment. Um, they ran a play test, which was a play test with, this, with, with some uh, students of the correct age, middle school students. Um, they asked them, did you have fun? And they said, yeah, this is awesome. We're hanging out with like, college kids playing a video game. It's super fun, <laughs> right? So what did they learn? You know, quote from the team, we learned that we, we mostly got that the game was engaging for the most part. That's all. When pushed, I'm like, okay, so then did that tell you something that you went on to the next time that you iterated on? They're like, no, no, not. We really didn't learn anything that informed our design. We learned that, but, you know, we already know what works for kids, so yeah, it's cool, right? This is sort of like red flags for us. This is not what we want to be teaching. We want to figure out how to help them actually engage with those players and learn from them. Um, we also saw that... Uh, People even who had very clear games had a hard time understanding what to test. Um, there was a group that was creating this sort of enhanced storybook. They had this idea that the page is magic, that it comes to life, that this is what they're going for in their aesthetic. Um, they didn't know how to test magic. How do we test, are you having a magical experience? Right? <laughs> That's hard. So they tested the UI. And created this test where they had like this UI scavenger hunt to see if all the kids could click on everything and find all of the hidden things, right? Smart to see if the UI is working. Um, what they created was this through doing this was this was this sort of um, sense of competitive reading where all the kids were trying to find the most things on the most pages. Um, and what they came away with is they came away with you know what you know what's the easiest UI for people to use? It's the hypertext links. Their advisor was not very happy with this and was because was like, well, a hypertext link takes you off the, this magic page you're creating onto a separate page. That's kind of breaking the world you're, crea you're creating. And the team went, yeah, but we play tested it. And uh, all the players said this was really easy to use. Um, so advisors like, um, yeah, your goal is not usability in a game. That's not your only goal. You achieved your goal, but that's not your only goal. Your design goal is a magical experience, but our demographic testing uh, showed that nobody had trouble with it. That's not the right question. I didn't get to the gameplay. Right? And some teams ran play tests, like very sophisticated play tests. This team had a live game that dealt with a global issue around um, food scarcity, and uh, their play test design, they created a lo-fi prototype to like play, play it out, and they found that the lo-fi prototype didn't work, so they came back and said, um, but that's not the fault of the game. That's just because this was lo-fi. If this were digital and we all had phones in our hands, this would have been really easy. 
they built the app, phones in the hands to, to, to facilitate this live game, and it didn't work, right? And the same, they were like, oh, right, yeah, I guess we should have paid attention to that lo-fi playtesting, but we just thought, we, we didn't have faith in it, right? We didn't believe in what was happening. Um, so what this tells us is that it's not that the, these game designers were not playtesting. They were playtesting plenty. It's not that they weren't using good tools. They were using some good tools and measures. They were asked, they were, um, it's not that they weren't willing to do this early playtesting, like the lo-fi prototyping. They were doing it. But they were um, missing this sort of question, understanding of like why they were doing it. They were having a hard time collecting the playtest to specific design decisions that they were making in their games. So that caused us to go back and redesign our workshops and really try to put this front, front, up front, right? Um, we did this by increasing our focus on player experience goals and making a very a sort of explicit, as explicit as we can, connection between those player experience goals and design choices so they had something concrete to test against. We, this leads to asking good questions and selecting methods. Um, in this bit of, of what I'm going to present, I'm going to look, look more on the, on the um, setting goals and trying to figure out how that connects to your design choices side. But... Um, we could also talk about some of the tools for selecting how to select methods. Right. Um, so one of the things we added to our, our uh, workshop was some brains, were some brainstorming exercises. Plex cards are these uh, sort of playful experience cards. You can take a look at them if you want. These aren't things we created. Right, some ways to kind of look at what's the big sort of experience going for in your game, and we had used that as a starting point, doing some simple brainstorming, mind mapping exercises to help them think broadly about what kind of game elements might be connected to this this central experience they were going for. Um, but then uh, looked at okay, that's a starting point, that's a brainstorm. The hard part is connecting all these great ideas you have in brainstorming to actual design choices that you can then test. Um, in very general terms, um, we, we laid out this sort of visual organizer called Composition Box that on the highest level asked them to start with what you already know about your game and experience, like what are the givens from the beginning, what are the things you know you want to explore, the, the things that are necessary for this, for this exercise look at all those possible game ingredients, the things that are inspiring to you, the sort of experiences that you, that you are want or you're drawing from, um, this is where your research comes in, the specific needs of the game and the, the, player, the player group and the um, needs of the development team, and thinking about what you are trying to get out of this experience. So what those um, composition boxes look like is like they look like this, right? They look like big sort of mood boards, um, brainstorming, lots of notes, lots of comments back and forth, making visible to the team all these different parts of the game, all the things that might go into the game. Yeah? Uh, you used the 
Yeah. Never heard of her. Oh, yeah. So, right. So a mood board, if I were the interior designer designing this room, I might create a mood board that had, you know, I think we're going to use this color palette. I think we're going to use, and I'm really interested, this is an inspiration photo I pulled out of a magazine that's beautiful, that is like what we're going for. And this is the tone. Um, so for a game, it might be, I, am really, I really love the mechanic of X game, and I want to try to play with that, so that's something that might inspire me. And I'm, I'm really into this kind of art style, so I'm pulling some of those pieces. Yes, yeah, same thing. I don't think there's, I, yeah, I think it's just turn of phrase. Yeah. They're actually an incredibly useful tool, uh, but if they're left open-ended, they tend to turn into like art vision, right. like art vision boards, because that has the prettiest pictures, so everybody kind of tends to converge on that. So one of the reasons that we introduce a sort of method that's structured and aimed at game design specifically in the form of the composition box is to actually get a diverse set of themes into this visual organizer. And in our case, we have these interdisciplinary teams that we're working with, so all team members could actually contribute from their areas of expertise, right? So there might be, in, in the teams we work with, there might actually be the team artist would do sketches and put them in the composition box. And the, the game designer on the team would be like, here are 10 games that are really inspiring. And the programmer might put some technical constraints, yeah. but might they also didn't. write down like a story. Like when I was 15, I used to play such and such game with my friends, and I had this emotional experience. And that could also go into the board. So we really tried to think about the diversity of places that game design experiences can come from, and to scaffold the designers that we worked with in using this more diverse, creating this more diverse vision. So once you've gathered all these different sorts of inspirations and everybody's ideas and everybody's contributions into it, um, we ask them to then organize those, start looking at what they might have many player experience goals, which of those ingredients they thought would support different player experience goals they had. So you could start making those connections about, I, I have a hypothesis that this kind of art will give this kind of experience, or this kind of mechanic will give this kind of experience. Um, pull those out and create what we call like a recipe, right, that informed their sketching and their prototyping early on. And what create what this this middle step, these middle steps that we're kind of adding the structure in to kind of to support this creating a recipe feeds into playtesting because that allows them to playtest different versions, different twists on their game and think about it like you might um, in thinking about the ingredients in co cooking a uh, chocolate chip cookie, right? How does, when I, change when I change this mechanic, how does that change how I play? A little more detailed thinking about their design choices and what they think they will accomplish. Oh, you really can't read that at all. Um, but this goes back to that spiral, like we saw Tracy Fullerton's spiral, spiral at the beginning, and thinking about this ongoing process of like gathering all the cool things, making, making a game out of them, right? testing that game, evaluating it, having to pull it all apart again, and uh, making that next prototype. And this is something that sort of iter you can iterate on. 
So when we made these changes, and we, like I said, we made some other changes to help scaffolding, choosing what you actually want, the, how to, the, the, the methods or tools you used in the playtesting too. But when we made these changes, we, we did see a change in um, some of the specificity of their goals and tests. Um, for example, remember our Team B with our empowering children? They wanted it to be fun and to empower they had questions that were about engagement that they were like, yeah, everybody had fun. And they also made some questions about art that were actually some useful questions. Um, Team L in the next year is making this VR that's like uh, sort of public speaking um, skills game. Um, and they have you know, their goals are getting into something more specific, right? Lone, they want to deal with feelings of tension and anxiety. They don't want to back away from that, but to give players self-confidence as they move through it. So when they have something, they have a, a solid thing on skills, the uh, public speaking skills that they can draw from and measure, um, but they also, that they could like measure changes in volume, pauses, eye gaze tracking, time management, but they also had um, something to observe and to ask about in this move from like tension or anxiety to confidence that they wanted to try to see if there's any, if they can notice or talk to players about any change in that. Right, so there's something more specific. There, there are more specific things they can test. Um, we also saw this sort of interesting willingness to pivot, to make some um, important decisions between one iteration of their game and the next. Um, so, an example, we'll remember Tim, Team B is like we already know what works for children, so you know our game's pretty good. Um, Team H is working in a similar, similar age group. They wanted the game to be sort of problem-solving. We saw them sit down and do weekly play tests with middle, middle school boys, and each time they would change a mechanic, they change something in their balance, they change something in the level design, trying to get at a, something that was both a fighting game and a strategy game that caused them to actually move from something that was sort of Pac-Man-like mechanic at the beginning to something completely different and sort of Godzilla-like, I think, by the, by the end, right? Strategy they, Godzilla. Strategy Godzilla, <laughs> right? And, you know, the core of the game didn't really change, but they were so dedicated to try to find that balance that the artwork around it changed and many of the decisions in their, in their way that they uh, went about the game-making uh, changed in that process. Um, anything you want to add about that? You probably know more. Um, yeah, I mean, I would actually say that that they're um, they ha they did a lot of really deep thinking, and this is maybe not quite uh, not not just about pivoting, but they did a really they were able to use these playtests not just to pivot the game. But to do a lot of really deep thinking about what their audience needed that they couldn't articulate. So when you're working with players, I'm sure many of you have had this experience, but except in the very best case scenario, which in Metatopia would be a best case scenario, in most cases, players cannot always say what they need, right? That they may be having feelings or experiences, that they will misattribute to different parts of your game, that they will... Um, have nothing to do with your game, but have to do with something that happened outside of the game that they're attributing to your game, or vice versa, or um, they, they're feeling something but they can't say it, or they know they're feeling it but they don't want to say it, right? So there's all of this stuff that goes on with getting good data from people. And uh, eighth grade boys are about the worst people 
Oh, you just can end the sentence. <laughs> I, I was also, you know, a, a teacher, right? Yeah, sorry. From, from experience. So um, what they were really able to do is because they understood, what they did is they made every playtest sort of a hypothesis about what might really be going on with these boys. So beyond just playtesting their game, they actually also used a probe strategy simultaneously. So they were iterating their game, and they were trying to probe the mental space of these boys. So they would go in with a bunch of games from the app store, right? And so the context is that these boys, these are not just like random eighth grade boys. These are eighth grade boys at a facility for um, boys seventh to 10th grade who have significant social or communication disabilities, right? So cognitive functioning is fine, social and communication functioning not fine, and they get 15 minutes a day where they can go on the school's iPad and play any game they want. So they went in and they would say, from these four games, which one would you most want to play during your 15 minute free iPad play period? If you saw these four games in the app store, which one would you download? And they were actually testing hypotheses about what was going on with these boys. So for example, one of their hypotheses was a lot of their decisions are connected to their explorations of masculinity. So they created these four games that some of them were using sort of overtly, basically they, they took two games and they rethemed, right, two of them, right? So it was kind of like gender neutral games, masculine coded games, right? Like, you know, like trucks and guns version of the same game. And uh, so one of the things that they were able to find is that masculinity was a concern for these boys, right? Um, they also had a hypothesis that the boys were attracted to things that were transgressive under the rules of the school. So in every other context, they had really strict rules about what they were allowed to talk about, how they were allowed to behave. So they created a set of pros for each of these games that you download that were about, where two of them were about violating the school rules and two of them were not. And they actually found they didn't care so much about being transgressive. They came back the next week with a set of games that let them say, okay, so we think they don't care about being transgressive. What if all four games are dealing with these themes of masculinity that we know they care about? Then do they care about being transgressive? So they were really thinking about using these probes to understand what was in their audience's hearts and minds in a way that they couldn't articulate. And that happening at the same time as the game iteration of the game design mechanics shaped the way they redesigned the mechanics. So their original idea was, we need to give these, you know, they're gonna stop around and it's gonna be very action-y, because that was their hypothesis about what these kids cared about. And actually, they realized that they had more freedom in this design space than they expected from this exploration that was taking place simultaneously with this refinement and mechanical iteration. So it was a really interesting playtest strategy for the project. And that's something that that you can adopt. Like, like part of the reason we do this is like steal everything good that other people have ever done, right? Like please take it, right? So like having multiple playtests, like mini playtests within your playtest can be really, really helpful if you think you're in a good design space, but you don't necessarily understand why. Right? So that's what they were trying to figure out. Is that like yeah. Yes, that's what okay. we were hoping. I knew you. I knew you knew a lot more about what was going on with them. Um, so, 
that talks about what we did and are doing. Um, I, 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 I am excited to be here because there's so things that I know about. I've watched a lot of designers play test. I've talked to a lot of professional designers about play testing. Right. I come from a theater background. I'm very interested in ways that people uh, participate in creating something together and in building communities. Um, there's a lot of things about uh, tabletop board games and role-playing games that I don't know. So I'm excited to be here to meet you guys and to learn about like what sort of the questions that you have and to play some awesome games. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. so with that... Any questions? Yeah. Okay. So before we go into Q and A, do you want me to come and sit up? Yeah. If I realized that like I would be doing Q and A during, then I'm going to just stay up. Okay. So before we go to Q and A, um, we also want to say everything that we've made is available free mm. online. Playtestingworkshops.com has our workshops. I will not bang that table. Has our workshops. You can download them. Every, all of the materials for our workshops and run them yourselves. And what we would recommend doing, you don't have to do it this way, but um, is if you're going to do it, get a group of like three or four people together, all of whom have games. That way you can give each other feedback and have one person volunteer to be the facilitator, just the facilitator, timekeeper, keep everybody on track. Um, we've run them for groups of up to 20 blah -de blah at a time and it works great. I don't know, I feel like that's a lot of herding cats. I don't know anyone who wants to herd that many cats except maybe people who organize conventions. But um, you can, like, everything we've learned is for you. So if you want it. So playtestingworkshops.com. Um, the main reason we're not running workshops at Metatopia is because each of the workshops is three hours. So that's like nine hours of workshop, and that's just not in scope for... Uh, you know, three day, three and a half, three and a half day convention. But um, if you do decide that you want to run them and you need any support, you can get in touch with us. There's an email listed on the play testing workshops. Oh, so you can get Judy's email. You can also email me. Ideally, email both of us. There's contact information on the playtestingworkshops.com website. So we just want to make sure that before we before we even go to Q and A. Just know that like all of the research that we've done is in the service of making more awesome games. So, uh, and that includes yours. All right, now we're open for Q and A. Okay, I have, totally have a question. This might take a few sentences to describe, but I'm curious about it. Something like, so I love how compact your method is, um, and like, where do game designers get their mechanics lexicon from. So like, for example, like if they're in order to take the data they're getting and then pivot and make an informed decision about what to replace a mechanic with, like where do they learn that? Given especially given that as we experience games, we only experience this cluster of mechanics at a time. It's a really good question. Do you want to take it or well, you might know more about their mechanics whether their education generally. So, um, you know, in, so in the first version of this talk we ever gave, there was a slide that was basically like, 
game designers have no fucking clue what to do with mechanics. But that was we thought that was a little too much. But it, it turns out that actually even game designers struggle to articulate like this mechanic isn't working. What should I do differently? Um, so what you've hit on is is a real pain point in what we've observed. Um, we deal with this in three ways. One of which is specific to the context that we're in and is probably not going to help anybody else, but maybe could. Okay. So thing one is we uh, really encourage when you're in that stage of formulating your game to, to be looking for game design references. So a lot of times we see student designers at the very least uh, sort of be fall into one of two pitfalls when it comes to working from design references, which is either they're like, no, my game is a special snowflake. It's not like any other game out there. Or they're like, I'm going to take that game and I'm just going to make it, but with zombies, right? So um, there's some really interesting research uh, actually done by a colleague of mine, Stephen Dow, showing that people are more creative when they're looking at multiple exemplars of a thing next to each other so that they can say, what if you took this from that, this from that, that from that, and that from that? So we push people, push designers, to stick a lot of, of mechanical exemplars into their composition box, right? Into the bin, so that they can say, what if we took this from that, that from that, that from that, that from that? It turns out that that just helps people have better ideas. And then you can apply that trick, by the way, to any kind of creative process, right? That's thing one. Um, Thing two is um, that you can actually do the work to break a mechanic down further, which is one of the things that we often do when we lead these workshops. So they'll say our mechanic is jumping, right? Okay, so what are some of the factors about jumping? Like how long you stay in the air, what you do to jump, uh, what is the relationship between the button and the jump, right? I'm... I'm, I'm just giving like a very crude example. But you can actually get somebody to break down all of the factors that go into a mechanic, and you can kind of apply the composition box process within a given mechanical decision. So that's thing two that's pretty generalizable. Thing three is we have the good fortune that we're doing our work within a, a, an academic program. So actually, all the game designers we work with have had classes in game design. So they have a common language. That said, I, there are some books and um, like online courses that I highly recommend. Uh, Anna Anthropy and Naomi Clark's book, A Game Design Vocabulary, is a really good place to start thinking about this stuff. It is a digital, it's a digital game book, but it's not, unlike many books that are about digital games, it's actually applicable to non-digital games. Um, and uh, there are uh, there's a very good online course about game design. Um, I can't. It's Scott Osterweil, and I can't remember who else out of MIT. It's MITx. You can just get it online for free. So there are places that you can work to develop this kind of shared mechanical vocabulary. That said, I think one of the best ways to do it is to talk to other people in your discipline within game design. So when people are designing a role-playing game, I tell them to go out and talk to role-playing game designers, right? Because there is this craft knowledge that, like, I don't want my students reinventing the wheel, and I sure as hell don't want to reinvent it. So how do we, 
How do we surface that? And I think part of our work is to try to make that more accessible to everybody. Does that answer your question? Yes. All right, we'll, we'll, we'll have a come back to you ups if other people have questions. Um, so I guess there's sort of a model design where at the beginning you figure out your goals and then you set them and then everything else flows from that. But I feel like sometimes those goals change, like some fall out or some new right. ones come in. Um, how do you think about that in the design? Yeah, so I think that that's an important part of the pivoting that's happening and that, that in the the. the, the refined in the meat of it right is that sometimes you find you have a goal and you make a game and you realize something is really cool about the game but it's not what you thought it was right and uh then you just have a decision to make like right either now i redesign the game or i decide i'm going to go with the cool thing and change your change your goal yeah yeah and so one thing that you can do to support that goal change process is you can actually go back and change your composition box to reflect where you think it, like, take experiences from the game and stick them back into the hopper. So, um, you know, that first thing was this, like, spiral, implying you're, like, always moving forward, but it, it, that's not really... You can't really see it. Yeah, you can't really see it, but it's very much like... So my lab just published another paper that's about the importance of changing your goals in the game design process. If you're interested, it's called The Tandem Transformational Game Design Process. And it is basically a paper that is about changing your goals. If that's something that you are interested in as a designer, you might want to read the paper. And it has a lot of process-oriented stuff about how you do that effectively without losing sight of what's important to you. Yeah? Uh, I'll hang up on that. Uh, another panel I said today, uh, they, brought, they brought up that if you don't have a client, uh, you're just designing for the passion of it, and if you lose the thread, or the goal is no longer a goal, then you can always shell it and come back later. Yeah, right, that's absolutely right. true. Yep. Yes, so one, and then we'll take one more question, then we'll close. So you and anyone, any last questions? All right, yes. on the project, but for, so I'm going to repeat the question. So the, the, the question is, um, how do you figure out who the, who the audience for your game is? So do you start with like an a priori theory about who the audience for your game is, or can you kind of like throw your game at the wall and see which players it sticks to? And the answer is it depends on the project, but I actually think the latter is really good, and in some ways a really good way if you, if you don't know the answer to that question, every player who loves your game is data. But the critical and and actually really difficult thing is understanding what those players actually have in common. So it's it, there are a lot of things that we look at people and we see like on the surface, like, oh, clearly the people who love my game are uh, adult women. I'm making a game for adult women. But A, that's still a huge category. And B, like maybe that's not actually the thing they have in common. So one thing that you can do is you can look at some of the research on what motivates players 
what differentiates players. Um, uh, there, are, I, there are a number of good resources that I'd be happy to point you to, but we're out of time, but come and talk to me, and I can point you towards some ways to think about, I know 12 players who loved my game and 15 players who thought it was okay. How do I know what's really different between them? That is a question that you can start to answer in shaping an audience for your game. I have tools to help you. They are not on playtestingworkshops.com, so we'll talk. All right, we got to close. People are hanging out. Thank you all so much for coming. Really appreciate it. If you want to see the uh, the composition box um, at work, doing using that for body storming, we're doing that at eight o'clock tonight. Oh, thank you. Yeah, eight o'clock tonight. In action. Do some acting. Do some playing. In action. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah.